0: Ticknor and Fields is a firm that started in the 1830s and in the 1870s merged or was really bought up by a Cambridge printer, Henry Oscar Houghton, and became the seeds of the modern Houghton Mifflin Company. Ticknor and Fields interested me because during the 40s and 50s and 60s, it as a firm published very large percentage of the books that we now look back on and think of as the great American literary works of that period.
1: So someone within that organization must have had a very good eye.
0: Well, that was sort of the question. One of the partners, the junior partner, Jamie Fields, after he retired from publishing, spent pretty much the rest of his life telling us how close he was to all these authors and his great capacity for friendship and discovering talent and so on, and those made good stories but I don't know that I believe it entirely.
1: So he was taking credit for the uh, list that he was Well, he was developed. creating a myth. The mm-hmm. evidence was there. They were publishing them, so...
0: Well, I mean, there are two examples I can give, which is after Dickens' death, Fields wrote several long pieces about his close friendship with Dickens and his visits to Dickens at Gad's Hill in London and things like that. And uh, Certainly, there was a very good and strong business relationship between the two. To a certain extent, Fields was able for a while to become Dickens' authorized American publisher. He was very heavily involved in organizing Dickens' last reading tour in the United States. But I'm quite sure that from Dickens' perspective, it was almost purely a business relationship, and that his attitude was sort of, oh, here's that perfectly nice American publisher. I must be nice to him now and invite him out. I, I think that probably Fields Overstated it. And I've also felt, and that book you showed me earlier, written by Tickner's daughter, Caroline. Caroline, will bear me out. I've always felt that Hawthorne was actually much closer to Tickner than he was to Fields. Fields was a kind of a bubbling person.
1: More of a PR kind and of. I
0: think the perfect afternoon for both Tickner and Hawthorne was to sit at the bookstore, facing each other, smoking cigars and saying nothing. Sort of late in the afternoon, Hawthorne would sort of stand up and say, I must be getting going now. I haven't had such a good time in a long time. I think that they were both, to a certain extent, shy people. Let me take
1: the role of a prospective book collector who has noticed Houghton Mifflin titles and appreciated the quality of their production, where might I start without breaking the bank to collect these books?
0: Well, probably Houghton Mifflin, of course, now has almost 200-year history, and I would think that one would want to start by focusing on some aspect of it And again, when I was doing my work, I focused on the year 1856. I tried to look at all of the books they published in that one year. Why that year? Several things. Part of it had to do with uh, business records of the firm was a year which was very rich documentation. It was also an election year and a very important election year because it was the first year that the Republican Party, which at that time of course was an anti-slavery party, ran a candidate for the presidency, and it's also right at sort of the height of this period that is often referred to as the American Renaissance, that was this first great blossoming of American literature. And it's the year before 1857, which was a terrible panic and contraction of credit, and a lot of publishing firms went bust in that period. So it's, it is sort of a, an interesting year. I mean, like one didn't limit oneself that way. One could collect Tickler Field's books before 1860 or something like that.
1: What about the year itself, then? What came out of that? Were there a variety of different types of bindings, for example? or were there the appearance of some new uh, authors?
0: But there are several things. One of the things that I find so interesting about collecting in this way is that there are inevitably high spots. And high spots one thinks of Einstein's theory of gravity, they kind of warp the space around them. And so it's very interesting to see what is the context in which a book appeared. A better example of that perhaps in and Fields would be uh, John P. Jewett, another Boston publisher of the 1840s and 50s, who is notorious for having published Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a great book. I made a checklist of all of his publications. He was one of these publishers that got into financial trouble in 1857. And basically, although he didn't go out of business until the early 60s, he basically retrenched heavily and actually died. I mean, it's kind of a tragic story because at one point he published the great best-selling book.
1: Did he reap the benefits of that?
0: In investigating him, it's, it's quite possible that he made almost no money off Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was a book that nobody knew how to publish. Nothing had ever been like it before. But I think he was a genius. I think he knew how to promote books. Four years later, he published probably the second great bestseller of the 1850s, and when you look at how he handled that, you can see that he learned his lesson that that book is The Lamplighter. The Lamplighter. Maria Cummings. He was certainly very strongly anti-slavery. He was also a very much a religious publisher, very closely tied to that branch of the Congregational Presbyterian Church that was centered at Andover Seminary. And I was able to show, which nobody had known before, that in the mid-40s he had actually moved to Cincinnati for a year at the time when Calvin Stowe and Harry Beecher Stowe was living there.
1: So you became interested in this publisher. You started to do some research and then at least look, if not acquire.
0: At his his work.
1: Now, from a collector's standpoint, is it difficult to get a hold
0: of these books? If I were to advise a beginning collector, and this is a piece of advice that I think comes originally from John Cohn of Seven Gables, buy the big book first. If your interest in Jewett is because of Uncle Tom's Cabin, you're going to have to make a decision Am I never going to have Uncle Tom's Cabin, or am I going to buy it? It's never going to be less expensive than it is now. And there's nothing wrong with not having Uncle Tom's Cabin, but
1: beyond then, that,
0: he published William Wells Brown, who was an African-American writer, and that's a book now that would now be expensive. Fifteen years ago it would have been a fifteen or twenty dollars book. More but, and more
1: people have become aware of it.
0: People have become very interested in Brown. He published the first real African- American novel published the first African-American play, performed it. He was a historian of the African-American, a fascinating character.
1: I suppose there's lots and lots of people like this. It's just a question of doing a bit of research, finding someone that speaks to you, and then digging around to see what books they, they wrote.
0: As I say, it's this business of the single book that you know about, and you think, okay, how did that get there? Yeah. What's behind it? Another Boston publisher, a little bit later, who's interesting to me, is a firm named Thayer and Eldridge, probably best known for publishing the third edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass.
1: That's a kind of an obscure reason to be well-known for?
0: It's the first edition not self-published. They apparently did pretty well by it, and they were a very strongly pro-Republican party, and they publish a lot of quite interesting anti-slavery works, uh, history books about Haiti, and some novels. It would be very interesting to know everything they published. Why? You might tell me something about what it was about Walt Whitman, intersection between politics, culture, and business.
1: Sounds to me that's like your real passionate interest, as opposed to the physical book itself, or am I wrong?
0: Tickler Fields are very interesting, because they had a skill, which I cannot explain, but they were able to make books that were distinctively their books. They designed two bindings. One is a brown corduroy cloth, people refer to as tea-ribbed cloth, quite a plain binding with a canvas flower, it's called, on the sides. It's a binding that they used on their books, and it's very distinctive, and you go into a bookshop today, and you could pull the Tickman Fields books off very quickly. It's the binding that Henry David Thoreau's Walden appeared in, it's the binding that Scarlet Letter appeared in, it's the binding that Emerson's essays appeared in, the Longfellow, all, I mean all of those. It's did they invent it? The separate elements that went into it, you can find on other bindings. If they invented something, I invented the idea of using that binding as a brand. And they did that a second time, and actually in 1856, they published a one-volume original, Collected edition of Tennyson's poetry, and it's quite a small pocketbook. And it was bound in a bright blue cloth with gold edges. And that binding was referred to as the blue and gold. It was printed here in Cambridge at the Riverside. It looked different from any other book at the time. People noticed it in reviewing it, they mentioned the binding. There's a friend of the firm actually wrote a poem That's about the, the blue and gold. And it became a kind of standard, almost like a penguin. I mean, it was mostly collected editions of poetry. And curiously, that is a binding that other firms copied.
1: But they didn't copy the first,
0: but the first corduroy one, one. That seems to have been much less copied, if at all. I mean, that would be another kind of collecting area, not by publisher, but I've always wanted to do an exhibition or something of American fine printing, before the 1890s. Before the Scott. It's very hard for us to see books the ways that people of the 19th century saw them without seeing them through the lens of William Morris and that whole arts and crafts.
1: I'm speaking with Michael Winship.
0: Professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: And also a renowned uh, expert on American book publishing in the 1800s. Would that well, be accurate?
0: I, that's mostly what I write on as publishing history, 1830, like into the 20th century.
1: Tickner and Fields published some very decorative or beautiful I think, books.
0: I think the book that they published, that I think is probably the best book, came out in 1864, which is of course the last year of the Civil War. And for a reason that I don't understand, that period produced a number of quite luxurious books, they published a biography of William Hickling Prescott, who was a Boston historian of the conquest of Mexico most famously, and after his death, George Tickner, another Bostonian, wrote a biography, and it's quite a, it's a wonderful work.
1: Wonderful in the production yeah, in values? In the
0: typography, in the illustrations, and the layout of page.
1: So that book, were there a series of books that they put that kind of effort into or is it just that one on its own?
0: There's another one that's somewhat like it. It's a book about Egyptian monuments. Quite pretty bindings, too. I would think that The Blue and gold, in a sense, was a series. I mean, this was the whole game of publishing in the 19th century. Bindings were very yeah. expensive, but if the binding worked to separate you from your money,
1: well, it was also a sign of for status and prestige to be able to show off a collection of books in your library, I imagine. Partly. Like driving an Audi today.
0: I mean, certain books clearly were designed as display pieces. After the Civil War, other publishers began playing around with what I call niche marketing, understanding that you could package the same book in a variety of forms, at a variety of prices.
1: John Lane was recognized as well, a master Lane of
0: that, 1890s. 1890s. They start doing this by the 1860s. There's a wonderful advertisement, which I own, and there's an image of it on the web, from about 1878. It's for Uncle Tom's Cabin. They're offering Uncle Tom's Cabin for $1, for $2, for $3, for $4, and then down the side they have Topsy basically doing a kind of tumbling routine. And the whole point here is that they have an Uncle Tom for every market. Every uh, you know, income. The other place where Ticknor Fields and Houghton Mifflin really did this kind of series of these collected editions of mostly poets. So, you had the household edition of Longfellow. And they're attractive books, but they were kind of thought of as standard editions, the kind of thing that you might have in your library as a reference book or something like that if you wanted to have all of Longfellow's verse. By the end of the century, they really were publishing all of the great New England poets Longfellow, Whittier, Holmes, Lowell they were producing gift books books that were designed really for Christmas presents where they would take a single poem and reprint it with illustrations mixed into the text and those again are very very attractive and quite, I think quite interesting and collectible obviously and collectible
1: so were there any particular printers that were better than others that Tickner and Fields and then Houghton Mifflin used
0: well yes the Riverside Press was considered one of the best presses, and there were presses in New York, Avery, Grand Avery, uh, and in Philadelphia that were were more expensive. Also here in Cambridge, the University Press. But although Ticketer and Fields and Houghton Mifflin did some very attractive work, and they were also trade publishers, a lot of their books are workmanlike, high quality. When you get into the 1890s and the turn of the century, Riverside Press, which was where almost all of Houghton Mifflin's books were produced. At different times, both Bruce Rogers and Daniel Barkley Updike worked there.
1: These are two iconic
0: American designers.
1: Yeah, type designers as well as covers and uh, page layouts and that sort of thing.
0: And they were doing some quite ordinary trade books, but also doing some quite wonderful books that were aimed really at collectors, limited edition books things like that. Is there
1: a bibliography of Rogers and of Updike? There are checklists. What would you do if you were in a young collector's position right now, and as I say, had an interest in, in this particular publisher? The best collectors typically don't go and follow the herd. They seek out something that doesn't cost a whole heck of a lot, but that they think has value. So, given that, what would you do?
0: Well. I mean, the collection I've never made that I wish I had would be to buy I and mean, I could continually upgrade it. It isn't a publisher, but to buy a book from each year of the 19th century,
1: regardless of the publisher.
0: Regardless, my my goal there would be to have a representative example of the best conception I can form of American book publishing. And I think it would be fascinating to see the ways in which books change and the way they look differently. Probably be changing them out all the time. I think. Well, I have too many of that show this feature, and I haven't got that. It's a collection I'd love to have, but it would be something that you'd never be finished and always playing with.
1: So what kinds of things would you look for then, and
0: how Uh, they changed? We go back to 1856, and about that time, there was a complete revolution in taste in typeface design. There was a revival of types that were designed to look like 18th century type, and it's referred to as old style type. And for a while, between about 1856 and say 1865, well, you do see later examples. You even see books go back to the long s and that kind of thing.
1: Which are quite distracting for us modern readers.
0: I mean, you can find those extreme examples, but more interesting to me is just the less extreme, but you see suddenly that for 50 years, books have been trending towards this modern style, and then suddenly you get a shift in the ways in which binding styles change over time.
1: How do they change over time?
0: It's all this formula of fashion and separating you from your money fashion for the way books should look changes. Books can look very old-fashioned. As we know, if you look at the 1950s paperbacks, they don't look like modern paperbacks at all. So now they're kind of, you know, they're revived because they have a kind of cachet as being vintage.
1: To continue on then with Houghton Mifflin, when did that takeover occur from Tickner and Fields then, I roughly?
0: Guess, I believe that Osgood, James R. Osgood was a clerk and kind it of became James R. Osgood's company. Osgood I think had no talent for making money. He and Hurden Houghton joined up I believe in 1876 and in 1880 they forced him out. In 1880 you get the first Houghton Mifflin name and Osbud is out.
1: And did you see a significant change in the appearance of the books once that occurred?
0: One <laughs> of the ways that Osbud lost money was that he invested very, very heavily in a early photographic technique for reproducing images, but so he did produce some very expensive illustrated books.
1: Just putting on my collector's hat, if he produced expensive books, then these would be Beautiful, I would assume, and well, worth, and worth going after.
0: I don't know that they're beautiful in our, given our current aesthetic, but I think they're worth going after. And there are, of course, people who collect early photographic halftones. There was a Boston book fair here last weekend, and someone showed me a catalog that had a very early halftone in it, and it was priced accordingly.
1: You know what would be interesting is to compare the look of these books as new people become involved to see if you could identify any changes as a result.
0: I don't know to what extent you will succeed with that. There obviously was some impetus to have your books look distinctive. It's also an impetus to have your books look like everybody else's.
1: It's to be similar but, but different enough to, to make some sales but not and to scare w- them off.
0: It would be interesting to know, say, what Warren Tryon in the biography of Field says about the blue and golds, but I don't believe that there's any evidence to say that somebody designed that in their head and say they did it like this. There's some evidence that the printer was experimenting with different size paper to get the size right. I suspect it's as much the printer as it is the publisher. Publisher probably said we want a, a book that's smaller, smaller type so you can fit the entire works of Tennyson into one volume, what can you come up with?
1: Houghton Mifflin. Are they known, let's say, the, the first 20, 30 years of their existence, for any books that are particularly... Collectible? Collectible?
0: Well, in terms of design, one of their main binding designers was Sarah wyman Whitney a Bostonian. Many people collect her bindings. And
1: why is that?
0: Well, they're part of the, this style, decorated. Bindings uh, dominated. They can be gilt or stamped in various colors. She tended not to use color, she tended only to use gilt. Hers tended to be much more simpler and I would say more influenced by Japanese art than, say, Margaret Armstrong. I think if you put the two together, you'd see that they had a very different aesthetic. So, Houghton Mifflin sought out
1: good binding designers intentionally?
0: they, They sought her out and they paid her.
1: What would they be known for, then, Houghton Mifflin, if you were to try to
0: capture the
1: essence of the firm?
0: Well, Houghton Mifflin, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, were very strongly associated with the New England authors. And that's another collection I wish I had made, multi-volume collected editions.
1: Collected editions of the different New England poets? And these are still available
0: for collectors? Who can say? You yeah. can pay a lot of money for some of them. There is the manuscript edition of Thoreau, which has a leaf of his manuscript in each set.
1: So Holt Mifflin published that? Oh, yeah.
0: yes. Some of them are signed. A lot of them are in very fancy bindings. The other thing that they were very much, I think, associated with nature writing. Eventually, famous in the 20th century for being the publisher of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Hmm. I mean, going back to Walden, though I don't know that they thought of Walden as a nature book when they published it.
1: More of a philosophy book. Well,
0: and I think (laughs) they thought of Thoreau as a political writer.
1: Any final thoughts about collecting these venerable uh, publishing houses?
0: Well, I guess, I mean, my thought about all collecting is to collect what what you get really excited about, and don't worry about anything else. If you're not engaged with it, then I don't know the point. There's lots to be learned
1: thanks very much for your time I've been speaking with uh, Michael Winship professor
0: of English at University of Texas in Austin thanks again You're